A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to Bring Home Sandrine. This is episode two, The Coroner Rules. My name is Graham Crowley. Thanks for joining me. This podcast has been created for an adult audience. There is discussion about suicide and death. Listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Let me start by saying I have concluded Sandrine was loved by so many people. I know that because of the huge number of messages I have received from people thanking me for doing a podcast about her. The messages of support are appreciated. Thank you. And thanks to the many people who have messaged us with information they believe is significant surrounding Sandrine's disappearance. And a shout out to the Lady Vanishes podcast. What an amazing podcast it is one of my all-time favourites. It will be remembered worldwide, I'm sure, for what that podcast has achieved. And the best part is, it's not finished. If you haven't listened to it, get on it. The Lady Vanishes kindly promoted Sandrine's story on their Facebook page. They have a huge following. I cannot think of a more effective way to spread the word about Sandrine. Thank you, Lady Vanishes. You should know I have two goals with my podcasting. The first is to produce a podcast that has been as thoroughly investigated as Headley Thomas would. The second goal is to achieve a podcast result as spectacular as what The Lady Vanishes has. Wish me luck, please. I've set up a Facebook group page. It is called Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. I am told a Facebook group page is the best way to discuss evidence that comes out from a podcast. And as it is a closed group, members only, the evidence can be discussed confidentially. I look forward to seeing how it unfolds. I mentioned that most people have not heard of Sandrine's disappearance. I believe this comment from listener Robin pretty much sums up the tragic history of Sandrine's case. I just listened to Graham's podcast and cannot believe I have not heard about Sandrine missing or anything about her. Her name is so unusual that you would not forget it. Yet I live on the Gold Coast and have never heard anything about her. Let's hope this story gets out there and information and an outcome like Marion Barter happens. Thank you, Robin. Let's see if we can change that. In the last episode, we explored the circumstances surrounding Sandrine's disappearance as well as possible outcomes 1, 2 and 3 from her disappearance. I will discuss option 4, murder, in future episodes. To this time, I have limited information to work on. I have only what the family have provided me, which is considerable, and which includes the results of inquiries conducted by family and friends. 
I also have information I glean from online searches, media reports, and my own investigative sources. As mentioned, we are awaiting advices from Queensland Police regarding the Freedom of Information application for the police file. I do have the coroner's six-page report. Before I share that report with you, it is important to clarify the current situation as it applies in Queensland in relation to coronial hearings and the Coroner's Act. Under the Coroner's Act 2003, coroners are responsible for investigating reportable deaths that occur in Queensland. Inquests are not held for every death, however for certain deaths. The key word there is reportable deaths. Reportable deaths are deaths where the person's identity is unknown, the death was violent or unnatural, the death happened in suspicious circumstances, a cause of death certificate hasn't been issued and isn't likely to be, the death was related to health care, the death occurred in custody, care or as a result of police operations. The focus is on determining what happened, not attributing blame and making recommendations to prevent similar deaths in future. The investigation determines the identity of the deceased person, how they died, and the place, date, and medical cause of their death. The coroner also has jurisdiction to inquire into suspected deaths, also known as missing persons. The case of Daniel Morecambe, for example, had three inquests. Once a coroner has completed their investigations, there are two options. One to furnish a report or a finding of their investigations, or refer the matter to an inquest. Most coronial investigations are finalised without an inquest. If it goes to an inquest, witnesses are called, they give evidence, and then the coroner makes a finding. In the matter of Sandrine Emanuel Jordan, the coroner conducted an investigation and then wrote her findings, without the need for going to inquest. She reported on a Form 20B on 2 June 2016, almost four years after Sandrine went missing. Perhaps from examining the coroner's report, we can find out why the coroner concluded Sandrine committed suicide instead of an open finding, as discussed in the last episode. The following are the words of the coroner, as contained in the report, but not her voice. I have chosen not to use surnames of anyone mentioned in the coroner's report. I gave lengthy consideration as to how much of the coroner's report I would disclose here. Eventually, I decided on full disclosure. I want to find Sandrine. Her family and friends want to find Sandrine. I am hoping you will help find Sandrine by providing information. If I edited the report... I may unwittingly delete some valuable information that may trigger a memory. There were personal details, mainly of the family, in the report, not relevant to the investigation, that I did withhold. Some contents or parts of the coroner's report may be painful to the family, and in particular Sandrine's children. For that, I apologise, but assure you of my best intentions. The first heading of several headings in the report was... Introduction. I have investigated the death of Sandrine Emmanuel Jordan. Date of birth, 22nd of the 11th, 1974. Age, 37. Gender, female. Introduction. 1. 
On July 17, 2012, Philip L. attended the Caboolture Police Station and reported his sister, Sandrine Emmanuel Jordan, was missing. There is no positive evidence she has been seen alive since that date. Nor have any remains been identified as belonging to her. This is a review of the police investigation and the known facts to determine whether or not there is sufficient reliable evidence to conclude that she is deceased or whether this cannot be established. The coroner then went on to detail Sandrine's background, including that she was born in Martigues, France. She was one of six children to Sylvia J. Sandrine completed her primary schooling in France and then the family returned to Australia in 1980. Sandrine completed high school in Australia and was considered an intelligent student. The coroner provided details of Sandrine's relationship with Michael B. There were three children of the relationship, two girls and a boy, born in 1995, 1998 and the year 2000. The relationship broke down in 2007 and Michael B. moved to Western Australia and the children followed and were cared for by the father. You heard from the youngest daughter Nikita in the last episode. The coroner considered some of the information contained in points 2 to 7 contributed to Sandrine's suicide, as you will hear later. Points 8 to 13 were headed as follows. Sexual abuse during childhood and mental illness. 8. After her relationship with Michael B. ended, Sandrine was involved in numerous relationships. An overview indicates she formed personal and physical relationships very quickly that were often short-lived. It also appears from reading the many statements compiled by the investigating detectives from the Morton North Criminal Investigation Branch that she formed relationships with people in circumstances where she could be at some personal risk. I am curious to see how the contents of this point add to the coroner's finding of suicide. 9. A common theme in many of the statements was a recollection of Sandrine alleging she had been sexually abused as a child and in adult relationships. The other common account related to Sandrine's mood swings, paranoia, depression and anxiety. The acting clinical director of Metro North Mental Health Services provided an overview of Sandrine's contact with that service from 2008 until 2012. Her first admission followed a deliberate polypharmacy overdose where she intended to die. This followed overwhelming stress due to separation from her husband, disputed custody of her children and financial difficulties. She referred to an abusive childhood during this admission. She declined antidepressants which she had been prescribed in the past and found to be unhelpful. The first mention of the method of suicide, drug overdose. 10. Between 2008 to 2009, she received mental health support from Caboolture and then Redcliffe, where again the diagnosis was depression secondary to social stresses. She was referred to a private psychologist and psychiatrist. 11. During 2011, Sandrine was admitted to Prince Charles Hospital for six nights in October, suffering paranoia, worsening anxiety with homicidal ideation. She had been suffering audio hallucinations telling her to commit violent acts. She acknowledged cannabis use, 
Her diagnosis at this time was borderline personality disorder in a situational crisis. She was counselled relating to her traumatic childhood and prescribed medication and referred to ongoing mental health support services. 12. On 30 June 2012, she came to the hospital with friends due to vomiting following an overdose of medication. She was suffering anxiety and depression. She had only recently left her partner Ian at the time. Extreme mood swings were observed. It was noted she was quiet, cognitively intact, and considered to be of high intelligence, having studied psychology at university. But she felt hopeless and vulnerable. The second reference to an apparent attempted suicide, again by drug overdose. 13. On 2 July 2012, she spoke with the psychiatry registrar by phone, but would not reveal her whereabouts. She expressed fears that she might have been small doses of illicit drugs. She was referred to local mental health and general practitioner. There was further contact. This point does not make a great deal of sense, and it does appear something has been deleted. I gained from points 8 to 13, the coroner considered Sandrine's mental health to be a significant and contributing cause of her death. We heard of mental health issues reaching back to 2008, four years before her disappearance, setting the scene, so to speak. I will add that Sandrine's family dispute many of the coroner's findings, but we will deal with those later. For the moment, it is important to show what the coroner found and how the coroner arrived at her decision. The coroner then continued her reporting under the next heading. Disappearance. Ian C. 14. At the time leading up to her disappearance in July 2012, Sandrine was in a de facto relationship with Ian C. They had met in 2010 on Morton Island and they commenced a relationship in about March 2011 when Sandrine moved into his house. Ian C. told police at about this time Sandrine had a mental breakdown due to pressure with kids and money. Sandrine would not seek medical treatment although Ian C. thought she was depressed. She improved over weeks, but there were intermittent periods when she accused him having affairs and she appeared to be paranoid. This led to disagreements, but not physical altercations. He told police she left without notice in January 2012 and contacted him by phone from Port Macquarie. She said she was with her uncle and doing some artwork. 15. In April, May 2012, Sandrine contacted him again and said she wanted to return on a temporary basis to re-establish herself in Brisbane as things had not worked out for her in Port Macquarie. She stayed with Ian for a while. 16. Towards the end of June 2012, Ian, Sandrine and some other friends travelled to Morton Island. Ian C. told police she suffered a sudden decline in her mental wellness and she did not seem herself at all during this trip. She made wild accusations against him, none of which were true according to Mr. C. On the Sunday, Ian C., Jim H. and Michael M. went for a drive to fish, leaving Sandrine at the shed. On his return, she had gone and when he returned to his home, Sandrine had left in her car taking most of her possessions with her. She had made accusations against him to various people, saying she feared for her life and the way he was treating her. Ian C. denied any wrongdoing. 17. The next day she returned, saying she had to pick up more of her gear. Ian was alarmed at her demeanour, which he could only describe as mad. 
She was upset and deleted her phone details from his phone, as well as all her family and other numbers of people that were his friends. Then she left in her car, saying she would see him later. Other people say it was Ian who was deleting records from phones. 18. Ian C. told police this was the last he saw or heard of her. Police established this was Friday, 29 June. From the coroner's viewpoint, or perhaps she was just echoing the Queensland Police Service position, there was clear evidence of the decline in Sandry's mental well-being. It also confirmed the date her partner Ian C. last saw her, being Friday, 29 June 2012, two weeks before her disappearance. There is some confusion as to when ENC did last see Sandrine, as contained in the report. Point 16 refers to their trip to Morton Island towards the end of June 2012. There is reference to, on the Sunday, they went fishing, leaving Sandrine at the shed. Was that the Sunday before Friday 29 June, which would be Sunday 24 June? And that would mean they went to the island before that Sunday, which is not really towards the end of June, is it? Or was he referring to Sunday 1 July, which is not really towards the end of June either? So how was the date and day of Friday 29 June 2012 arrived at, and by whom? Was that two days before they went fishing? All very confusing. I hope that the statements police obtained make more sense than the summary. Look forward to reading them. In 2016, when Channel 9 A Current Affairs conducted a program on Sandrine's disappearance, Ian C had distanced himself from the whole matter. In answer to a question from the journalist, he said, We hadn't had any contact for a number of months after she left, when in fact... It was actually less than two weeks. I believe there's evidence to show that they were in contact around a week before she disappeared. He went on to say she had a very troubled mind, as everyone seems to understand. And then he said this, She had been disappeared for months before I even knew about it, which is clearly incorrect. The coroner continued her findings. 19. Overall, he described her well-being as concerning and increasingly paranoid. He saw her smoke occasional marijuana, but no other drugs. 20. On a couple of occasions, he said he and a friend of both of theirs, Hallie, who was a social worker, took Sandrine to the Prince Charles Mental Health Unit. He recalled once she was admitted for a week and another time there were no beds available. Her paranoia was demonstrated when she believed falsely according to Ian, that he had been poisoning her. I'm curious that no dates were provided and these attendances at Prince Charles Hospital are not mentioned above in points 11 or 12 of the coroner's report. Again, I hope they are expanded upon in the police statements. 21. He knew she went to several doctors and had prescribed medications. She sometimes voiced thoughts that she wondered what it would be like to die. When they were first together, he recalled her telling him her previous boyfriends had sexually assaulted her and made her have sex with other men and posted pornographic photos of her on the internet. Initially, he believed her, but when he found out she was saying similar things against him, 
he no longer believed her. 22. Towards the end of July, he received a text message from a mobile number he did not recognise. He opened it and discovered it was a message from Christine, one of Sandrine's sisters, with a Facebook photo of Sandrine titled, Missing Person. He rang her sister and found out Sandrine had gone missing. He started to make inquiries himself, and when he discovered she had not used her bank accounts, he became really concerned as, in his experience, Sandrine could not go without her cigarettes and the lack of access to her funds was alarming. Again, the common theme here is Sandrine's mental health was spiralling down rapidly. Ian C. hears of Sandrine's disappearance towards the end of July. The end of July was two and a half weeks after she went missing. That seems an extraordinarily long time not to hear about a missing person who was close to you for almost two years. Admittedly, they had broken up about two weeks previously. And then he apparently heard only because Sandrine's sister Christine messaged him in late July. Christine told me she messaged him and called him in the days following Sandrine's disappearance, but he did not answer calls and did not respond to messages. The coroner was well aware of concerns that Sandrine held towards ENC. Therefore, the coroner was obliged to corroborate and to comment on the claims made by ENC. I can see no record in the coroner's report where she did corroborate or not the various claims he made. Period between 29 June and 9 July 2012. 23. A number of people had contact with Sandrine during this period and they provided statements to police regarding Sandrine. The common theme was that Sandrine's mental health was deteriorating rapidly and she needed medical intervention or care. 24. Heli F. had known Sandrine for 15 years and was herself a disability support worker with Cerebral Palsy League Queensland. She had counselled Sandrine and Michael B. during their relationship due to Michael's attitudinal abuse to Sandrine, but not physical. After that relationship ended, Kelly and Sandrine remained friends. 25. Kelly was aware of Sandrine's history of depression after losing custody of her children. Her condition deteriorated over time and she described her behaviour as often erratic, paranoid and compulsive with extreme mood swings. 26. Kelly understood Sandrine had been in a traffic accident in 2008, which was an attempted suicide. This led to her admission under an involuntary treatment order, ITO, to the Caboolture Mental Health Unit. Another instance of attempted suicide, this time by motor vehicle impact. Christine told me the family believed this was not a suicide attempt. The car belonged to a family member and she drove into a ditch, quite by accident. I noted the wording in the report, Kelly understood this was an attempted suicide. Sounds like hearsay to me. If that was the case, it should not have been included. A woman who visited Sandrine in hospital told the family Sandrine was drug-affected, not suicidal, which caused the accident. Perhaps a police report will show if there was a connection between the accident and the involuntary treatment order. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 27. She became transient and frequently changed short-lived relationships. There were ongoing problems with family members, her medications, and relationship. 28. Kelly had met EMC on a number of occasions when he and Sandrine were together. She formed the opinion that he was a very nice and reasonable man. This was despite the alarming things that Sandrine said about him. Kelly essentially found Sandrine to be unreliable in her assessment of people. Sandrine's sister, Diana J., who was said to be her closest sibling, also told police she had no concerns about Ian C. despite Sandrine's fears that he would cause her harm. 29. On 30 June 2012, Kelly received a phone call from a man whose name she can no longer recall. He said Sandrine was with him, but he could not handle her and she needed a bed. Kelly and her husband picked Sandrine up. She looked unwell and they drove her to Prince Charles Hospital. She acknowledged to emergency department that she had taken an overdose of prescribed medication in an attempt to cope with her worsening mental state. Kelly provided her knowledge of Sandrine to the assessing mental health doctor. Despite Kelly's concerns, Sandrine was discharged to a hostel overnight with advice to return if she needed to for admission. An instance of attempted suicide by drug overdose. 30. Kelly had advised her she needed to go back to hospital and she did not disagree but she left the residence and that was the last time Kelly saw her. Later, she heard she was staying with someone called Jono. 31. Police established she stayed with a friend called Varney B, who was said to be alcoholic and too unwell to provide a statement. An investigator working on Sandrine's disappearance located and interviewed Varney B in 2017 and obtained a statement. And I believe the investigator spoke to her on more than one occasion. I intend to speak with the investigator and clarify that issue. 32. On the morning of Wednesday 4 July, Sandrine contacted Peter M of Mapleton, who picked her up after her car had broken down at Bly Bly. This friend helped her to arrange for the car to be towed to Mapleton and repaired. She told police Sandrine was paranoid and stressed. She was still making allegations against Ian C. When her friend advised her to get some medical help, it increased her paranoia. 33. Sandrine contacted her brother Lucien and asked for his help to repair the car. He arrived at the Mapleton address on 7 July and realised his sister was in a poor mental state. He told her she needed to see a doctor and take her medication. He refused her request to stay with him. 34. Sandrine left the Mapleton address in her car on 9 July to go to Centrelink. She visited her sister Diana J at Kippering, where she had previously stored some possessions. The sister was also concerned for her mental health and wanted her to seek professional help. Again, there was the problem of resistance from Sandrine and it ended up that Sandrine left, with generalised comments suggesting, but then denying thoughts of suicide. She drove to another sister's place, Bernadette J, at Burpengary. There she left her car, as it had broken down, and spoke as if saying goodbye. 35. 
Her brother-in-law then drove her to her mother's home, where she stayed for about four days. The theme of Sandrine's mental health spiralling downward continued. Her mother, Sylvia J. 36. Sylvia had heard her daughter had broken up with Ian C two to three weeks before she came to stay with her. Sandrine was with her mother for three or four days immediately before she went missing. Her mother also described her as very paranoid at this time, believing her phone had been tapped and Ian was like dad and that he was a pedophile. This is the only reference by Sandrine's mother to the issue of allegations by her daughter that her father had sexually abused her as a child. Her father did not refer to any allegations made against him by Sandrine relating to his actions when she was a child. He told police he did not know of any mental health problems. He only knew she had used some marijuana as a young person. He knew nothing of other relationships except with Michael B. He said he had no contact with Sandrine since about 1994 when Sylvia told him he was not welcome. The medical records do indicate a consistent and long history of reports of childhood physical and sexual abuse. Medial commentary indicates these unresolved events of a prejudicial childhood were likely to have been the underlying precipitator of subsequent mental ill health. It is noted that there is no reference by police that Sandrine had brought a complaint to police in Queensland about any person physically or sexually assaulting her. There is, however, reference by one of Sandrine's sisters, Diana J, to physical and sexual abuse within the family. Diana referred to Sandrine being her father's favourite. 37. On the night before she disappeared, Sylvia recalled Sandrine woke her up and they talked for hours about everything and nothing. She thought her daughter alternated between being lucid and being paranoid. Sandrine went out to use a public payphone and when she returned, she said she had been talking to a Brad who wanted to kill himself and wanted her to join him, presumably also to kill herself, at Kenilworth. Sandrine was trying to get help for the person called Brad and used her mother's phone to ring another woman. Her mother was not particularly surprised by the way her daughter was behaving. On the face of this comment... Sandrine is offered an opportunity to kill herself and declines and actively looks for help for her friend Brad to stop him killing himself. 38. On the morning of Friday 13 July 2012, she wanted to be taken to Caboolture and then on to a Buddhist retreat up the coast. But her mother was exhausted but helped her. First they went to the post office at Bribey and encouraged her to replace her phone, which was broken. Then they proceeded to Caboolture to a female person called Corey, who had a child who was experiencing a serious health episode. She too could not handle Sandrine's behaviours and disclosures of allegations she had been raped. Her mother dropped her off at another male friend's place somewhere in Caboolture, behind where she had lived. Robert P. asked Sylvia in for coffee also, but she declined and left her daughter there, as Sandrine's plan was still to go to the Buddhist retreat. The exact location was unclear. Sandrine indicated she was fine and would contact her mother if she needed to. Her mother was satisfied her daughter had access to money as they had been to the Commonwealth Bank the day before. She recalled seeing four or five $50 notes withdrawn from Centrelink payment. I have read in the material that the Jordan family gave me that a woman claimed she was with Sandrine when she reported a rape to the Queensland Police. There is no record of that rape being reported. I'm going to see if I can speak with that woman and clarify that issue. 39. Sandrine had a suitcase with her, 
a brown leather bag and another green bag with papers and smoke, as well as a string bag with her purse and licence. Similar items to these were found in 2015, three years after Sandrine's disappearance, not far from 123 Tomlinson Road. More about that in the next episode. 40. Sylvia could not remember the precise date when she dropped her daughter off in Caboolture, but she has not seen or heard from her since that time. 41. She had tried to encourage her daughter to go to the doctor for more medication during the period she was with her, but Sandrine had twice refused. Interesting, perhaps, but it does not add to the cause of death, means of death, or where she died, apart from providing details of her final day. Last person to see Sandrine Jordan alive, John B. 42. Sandrine then requested a lift from Robert P. to 123 Tomlinson Road, Caboolture. This was the home of John B. He provided statement and was interviewed by police. He was cooperative and clearly had a fond relationship with her. He confirmed he had known Sandrine for eight years and had previously employed her in horticulture at that address. 43. He confirmed Sandrine was in a very agitated state and she was expressing concerns about Ian C, who she believed was hacking her computer. 44. At some stage during the afternoon, she said, If you stay with me one more night, I won't have to do this. He thought she meant run away from the police. 45. He described their friendship as friendship and soulmate. She was at his place that day over about six hours. She was clearly paranoid and distressed. She said she had a secret. 46. Terry T was also present at the time. She lived in a caravan on the property and confirmed what occurred when Sandrine turned up. She was having mood swings. She expressed faith in John and feared that her children would be moved overseas. 47. When John's young son came home from school with a friend, there was a plan that they would ride their motorbikes at the showground with John's help. 48. Sandrine became more distressed and he invited her to come with them. She decided to stay and wait at the front gate. She had a purse and jacket with her. She returned halfway back down the driveway where she could see them loading the motorbikes on the trailer. 49. When he finished loading, John looked back and could not see her, but her jacket was on post. He drove back to the gate, still could not see her, and so he left with the boys. He expected she would return, but this did not happen. He drove around the area looking for her, but without success. At about 11pm that evening, John B. rang Sandrine's brother Philip L., and informed him that Sandrine had disappeared. L was not immediately concerned as he considered this behaviour of his sister was not unusual. 50. John B phoned L again on Saturday 14 July and again on 17 July. He told L that Sandrine had left her things behind at his place. It was after this that Philip L then contacted police. This was four days since she had last been seen. We now have information about Sandrine's final movements. Friends are concerned for her safety and whereabouts. There is no mention of the means of suicide. As with the claims made by Ian C, I believe the coroner had an obligation to confirm that the many claims made by John B had been corroborated. There is no mention of this in the coroner's report. Police Investigation 51. 
Police searches and inquiries have been ongoing since the report of her disappearance. The initial search area focused on the property where she was last seen and the surrounding area, including bushland. Numerous statements and investigations have been made following up on reported possible sightings. Investigations have been in areas including Sunshine Coast, New South Wales and Victoria. 52. Police were contacted by Amanda Haight, who described herself as self-employed clairvoyant. She provided an extremely detailed account of the abduction of Sandrine Jordan from Tomlinson Road on the day of her disappearance. She described two South Pacific Island males in their 30s who pulled Sandrine into the car. However, she did not report this to police until a significant time later after she had seen reports of Sandrine being a missing person. Her explanation of the delay was her husband's previous involvement with bikies and his warning not to involve herself with police. This is the only person named in the report to have their occupation provided. When I first read the report, I thought Amanda H contacted police in her capacity as a clairvoyant. The second time I read the report, I thought perhaps she contacted police as a witness. I found the whole point confusing. I traced the phone number for Amanda H and gave her a call. She was driving and promised to call me back, but hasn't. I will try and contact her again. 53. A partial number plate was checked by police and found not to match any known vehicle registration. 54. The police discounted this account, and so do I. 55. The usual comprehensive proof-of-life checks were made by police. No bank accounts in her name have been accessed. There was no evidence that indicated Sandrine had been seen or heard of since her disappearance, with one exception. Michael B., who was Sandrine's first and longest partner and the father of her three children, told police he received a letter. It was handwritten and signed Rosetta B. Michael B. did not recognise the writing. He contacted police and sent them the letter. The letter arrived not long after there had been several media reports about her disappearance. Police established the letter had been sent from Horsham in Victoria. It contained personal accurate information about Sandrine's family, including the correct addresses, names of her children, and details of her eldest daughter staying in Sydney. There were details of her mother remarrying. The letter urged Michael B. to forget about Sandrine and move on with his life. Police forensic examination of the letter was inconclusive. The specimen writer could not be identified or excluded. The name Rosetta B. could not be identified or traced. 56. Police also considered a specialist review prepared by the Queensland Police Service Behavioural Specialist Unit. They reviewed all of the information, focusing on her physical and mental health and including risk of suicide. They considered possible homicide, suicide or possibility that Sandrine voluntarily disappeared. 57. Their conclusion was a greater likelihood that she had suicided, particularly having regard to multiple suicide attempts, diagnosis of depression and borderline personality disorder, dated suicidal ideation over many years, particularly in days leading up to her disappearance, dated anxiety over pending return of her daughter, evidence of disordered thought patterns leading up to her disappearance, her recent perception that she had been rejected by friends and family to assist her with accommodation and support.
Police concluded Sandrine committed suicide. It is noted they made no comment about the means of suicide or where her remains may be found. Peter M., who was living at Mapleton at the time, reported that Sandrine stayed with her for approximately one week, leaving on 9 July, just four days before her disappearance. Sandrine was due to return to Peter's house on the 11th of July. Peter M. offered Sandrine to live with her for up to three months or longer at that time. Police interviewed Peter M. more than two years after Sandrine's disappearance. Peter's comments draw into question the last entry in point 57 of the coroner's report. More about that in a later episode. Conclusion 58. Sandrine Jordan disappeared in July 2012. Despite years of investigation, her whereabouts, if she is alive, or the location of her remains, if she is deceased, have not been established. 59. It is highly unlikely, given her history of mental illness and dependency on family and friends, that she could remain secretly alive. It is also highly unlikely, given her history, that she could support herself financially without continuing to access government support. 60. There was consideration of possibility that she could be at risk of foul play, particularly because of her transient lifestyle, numerous partners, and history of being subject to physical and sexual abuse. However, on balance, it appears far more likely that Sandrine caused her own death given her known state of depression, anxiety, paranoia, and overall distress at the time she went missing. 61. The date and place of her death and the whereabouts of her remains are unknown. In all circumstances, it is probable that she died within a short period of her disappearance. 62. The cause of death is also unknown. I find that the person is dead and I further find it is unknown how the person died. She is likely to have died within a short period from the time of her disappearance on 13 July 2012. It is unknown where she has died and the cause of death is also unknown. Signed, Coroner. 2 June 2016. Personally, I'm amazed that the coroner can report in point 60 there was consideration of possibility that she could be at risk of foul play but still returned a finding of suicide. The common theme throughout the coroner's report was that Sandrine attempted suicide by pill overdose apart from the mention of the one motor vehicle incident. If the Queensland Police Service found evidence of any other method of attempted suicide, I can guarantee the coroner would have referred to it. From the contents of the coroner's investigation, if Sandrine usually attempted suicide by pill overdose, then there's every likelihood that that is how she died. The first question is, where's the body? From the contents of the coroner's investigation report, I personally find it a giant leap to go from missing person to suicide with no body. There is just so much missing. I was devastated when I read in the report the coroner had ticked the box, I authorise the investigating officer to dispose of any property obtained in connection with this investigation according to law. 
If it ultimately turns out Sandrine did not commit suicide, then any evidence potentially gathered has now been destroyed. And more about that in the next episode. Perhaps when the police file, when obtained, can fill in the many gaps. Though I suspect the coroner would have referred to any relevant information had there been more available. Hindsight is always twenty-twenty. Investigating a missing person is incredibly difficult. Mostly, there is no crime scene. Once you speak with the person who last saw them, there is no go-to point. So I am keen to read the police file when obtained to see what was and wasn't done. I believe the coroner's playbook, page 1.1, should read as follows. Do not consider suicide as a cause of death unless you have a body to go with it. Point two. If you are unsure, refer to point one. And so on. The Jordan family explored making an application to the Queensland government to overturn the coroner's finding. A relative was in the middle of doing just that when she passed away. In the last episode, I commented on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of police officer Mick Isles. There was no connection to the two cases, by the way. I was just comparing the professionalism of the two matters. That coronial report went to 58 pages. I considered that inquest to be thorough and complete. For those who would like to read how that investigation was conducted, I have attached a link to the report in the show notes. Unfortunately, I cannot say the same for the coroner's investigation into the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan. That report went to five and a bit pages. If Sandrine's inquest is the standard, the coroner's office really needs to step up. I will also add that the Queensland Government breaks their own laws in relation to the Coroner's Act 2003 when it suits them. The murder of Leanne Sarah Holland is a classic example. The circumstances of that murder were such that an inquest was, and is, required by Queensland law, and at the very least, a coronial investigation. Queensland Government refuses, to this day, to conduct such an investigation. Why? Because the Queensland Police Service have told them it is not required. An inquest would lay bare the shambolic investigation and reinvestigation of that murder case. Some matters are better left undisturbed. I covered that murder in my podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland? That's it for the Coroner Rules. Please join me next time when we continue our investigation into the disappearance of Sandrine. I am attempting to speak with people who possibly have some information about the goings-on at 123 Tomlinson Road. It may take me a little time to track them down and speak with them, but I will broadcast again as soon as possible. If you have information about the disappearance of Sandrine Jordan, I would love to hear from you. You can contact me directly at my email address, graham, G-R-A-E-M-E, 5353 at live.com. Discretion and confidentiality are absolutely guaranteed. If you would prefer to remain anonymous, that too is fine. Go to the website of one of my other podcasts, www.whokilledleanholland.com. You can email me from there. Your email address will not be recorded. I have placed these contact details in the show notes for your reference. Please rate and review the podcast for me. It does raise the awareness of the podcast and the awareness of the case. 
If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a new episode drops. The Facebook page is Missing Sandrine Jordan. The Facebook investigation page is Graham Crowley Podcast Investigations. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Inevitable Hope by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for joining me on this journey.